Today's roast scrote is from Zeta, who has kindly submitted her story. So let's see which scrote is on the barbecue today. The story begins. So when I was in college, I studied abroad in an Asian country. To learn the local language, I did what most students do and found a language exchange partner. I found that men had fewer options and were more reliable than women, so I chose a guy who was seemingly nice and normal. Let's call him Henry. He was about 15 years older than me. Red flag number one. And still lived at home. Red flag number two. (laughs) Red flag number two, still lived at home. (laughs) I like that you paused there, Savannah, to let that that second shoe drop. (laughs) Which is normal in that country if you're not married. He had a steady girlfriend. Ooh, ooh. He was hoping to marry, so the first six months of our language exchange were great. Then she dumped him out of the blue, according to him. And boy, did he start getting weird. Yeah, it's never out of the blue. Nah, nah. This is. I want to know what he did. Yeah, right. That skirt translation usually for... I've, I've now suddenly realized she was serious about all the things she's been talking about with me for months. And that seems out of the blue. Yeah, exactly. I- I mean, this is only four lines in and it's already got more red flags than Lenin's funeral. So (laughs) nice. (laughs) Good one. Let's keep going. He got so drunk one time, he missed the step in his own house and came to our meeting with a busted up face. That's when I started getting creepy vibes from him. He alluded to the fact that he had a white girl fetish and was looking for a passport and mixed race babies. I wish you could see my face right now. Wait, he said that out loud? Yeah. (laughs) He said the quiet part out loud? I mean, honestly, like, that is an actual thing. Like, it happens a lot in the UK where, you know, white people primarily will say, I want, like, mixed-race babies. It's actually quite common. It's very bizarre, but it's common. Uh, People accuse us of being weird eugenicists. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's definitely a thing. Definitely a thing. That's, um... It's a little bit disturbing to be like, I don't really care about you as a person. I just have this racialized fetish. Yeah. And I want to pass that on to my children. Yeah, exactly. And fill them with issues and self-loathing and confusion. Yeah, exactly. He had a decent job at a bank, but he started hinting he was rich, which was doubtful, and that his parents were prominent and well-connected. Basically trying to pretend he was a cat. Cap, 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 cap in the wild. Cap, cap, cap. Yeah, that's all men have the uh, is the audacity. I mean, when they have nothing else, they have audacity. Cap, the cap is too much. More capping than crunch. He was basically trying to pretend he was a cat, whilst in the same breath. Basically trying to pretend he was a catch whilst in the same breath admitting that his mum still made his lunch and did his lunch. <laughs> Fuck me as well. <laughs> my mommy makes my lunch and my laundry. <gasps> oh gosh, okay. And he's what, like almost 40? Ew. But I'm a catch. Scrote logic. I mean, if she was in college, let's say 20, he must be about 35. But since he was a reliable language exchange partner, I basically just overlooked these red flags. Since I wasn't interested in dating him and we always met in public. 
And then I went to a spa with my roommate at a local hotel. I brought the hotel's free water bottle to my meeting with Henry, and he absolutely flipped and accused me of going there with a man. Wait, he's not even your man though yet, right? He's just a language exchange partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where's he, where's he get out telling you anything? Like, that ain't your man. That's not, he's not your man. I'm confused right now. It's also kind of weird that he's flipping out over a water bottle. I think we're starting to see why Henry was dumped quote-unquote, suddenly out of the blue. Yeah, it becomes clearer, definitely. But we'll continue with Azita's tale of woe because it gets a lot worse. Um, The next time, we were at a coffee shop and he covered his nose with one hand and picked both nostrils for a full minute. What? What? (laughs) She timed it as well. She timed it. One more minute. That's that's one minute wasted of your life and one minute that should have been such a red flag you got up and left. Oh my god. He then reached across the table, used the same fingers he'd been picking his nose with to take a piece of my dessert without asking and then winked at me. Ah, oh, hell no. Ew. So bad table manners. What flag are we on now? I can't remember what flag we're on. <laughs> I think there's like 10 at least so far. But yeah. This this is a communist rally of red flags, literally communist rally. I'm just like, like hey, that's offensive to communists. <laughs> I mean, on, I mean, I mean, I mean, no disrespect to listeners who are communists, but I mean, they use red flags, so it is what it is. <laughs> I almost threw up and just pushed the whole dessert across the table to him. And then he went on a business trip. He came back and bragged about being entertained by a different woman every night, trying to make me jealous of prostitutes. Cap, cap, capping again. Just capping. Oh, but at least he brought me a gift. <laughs> a pen and calendar from his bank's branch office in that country. <laughs> How thoughtful. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That reminds me of like, you remember that TikTok a while back of a sugar baby being like, look at all the stuff that my sugar daddy got for me. And it's like a hat and like some leggings and some small. I'm just imagining like, imagining your sugar daddy going to like a college campus, getting you a bunch of free pens and like free hats. <laughs> Bring you the hotel shampoos. Like, look at me. Yes, I am such a sugar daddy. And like, no, bitch, you're a splendid daddy. Bring you the hotel shampoos. Yeah. Legit. Look at my bountiful wealth of accumulated hand towels. All this can be yours. (laughs) The final straw that was during our last meeting. We were at a coffee shop. They seem to really favor coffee dates, which is a massive red flag in itself. But I can... I digress. Yeah, too many freaking coffee dates. All right. I, we didn't even get to that part. <laughs> you should have never been here. Sounds like they literally lived in a coffee shop. Anyway, I digress. So, so we were at a coffee shop and he says he wants to practice conditional grammar. So, you know, like, for example, what if is conditional grammar? And so he asked me, so what if your boyfriend got you pregnant and you didn't want the baby? <laughs> what? Abortion. That's my that's my answer. Well, yeah, well, it's your decision, right? But she said I wouldn't be stupid enough to get pregnant by my boyfriend, which, okay, well, fair response. Okay, so he says, okay, fine, but, but what if it were your husband? And I told him, if it were my husband, hopefully we'd planned it, and if not, we could discuss it. And he says, but what if you didn't want it and your husband did? I told him that at the end of the day, it's my body and I'll do what I want. And right there, in the middle of the coffee shop, he slammed his palm on the table and yelled, you are not getting an abortion. What? Yeah, somehow I feel like this is not about her. He's trying to baby trap her. This is what he is poking holes in the condoms. Yeah. 
Or this is what happened with his ex-girlfriend. This might have been why she left because yeah. she was probably like, this guy's a psychopath. I'm aborting your baby and peace out. Which, queen. God. Yeah. Like, it sounds like he's projecting his issues. Yeah. He's trying to start an argument he, he wanted to have with his ex-girlfriend with her. That's what, it, that's what it sounds like to me, that this is a continuation of an argument he didn't win last time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and of course, after his outburst, everyone turned to look. I mean, I was so embarrassed and scared. I got out of there as soon as I could. I went home and Googled him and his username popped up on all these BDSM websites. Okay. I couldn't read it, so I put it in Google Translate and it was bad. What is this? A hundred thousand million for Philly and red flag? I don't... (laughs) (laughs) I never met with him again, but seven years later, I was selling a sofa online um, and she was using only her first name. And probably based on her location, he guessed it was me and sent an email. I never responded, but was really shook. I hope he never got married or procreated. You and me both, sis. Fucking hell, what was that? Yeah, we're all over here holding our breath. Yeah. We're over here holding our breath and our breasts close to our chests. <laughs> rocking back and forth. Cupping my boobs in my hands in shock. Yeah, that's what I do to comfort myself. <laughs> Hoping this man never procreates. Gosh, how do you even begin a roast? Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, the whole time with the whole like abortion thing, I was like, he's trying to baby trap her. It's it, No, the moment he said, I want a biracial child, that was like, he's trying to baby trap her. Yes. And he was looking for a passport as well. So clearly trying to baby trap her. He's trying to make her pregnant with his child. It's going to be difficult for her to leave. Therefore, he can, I don't know, weasel his way to a more desirable passport. What a screw! Oh, my God. Gosh. It's how, it's almost hard to roast this guy because he sounds, like, crazy abusive. Yeah. <laughs> like, where it, feel, it feels too serious to make light of. Wait, wait, back up. So she said it's been seven years since I dated him. So he's 42 at least now, right? In his 40s, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we can roast him for being 40. He's a post-wall scrot, probably chasing young women still. (laughs) Post-wall. His mom still does his laundry, and they're all just looking at him repulsed, ew. Probably still got skid marks in his boxes as well. Yeah, he hasn't had to do his own laundry, he hasn't learned... He hasn't learned. That's the thing. If they're not forced to clean up after themselves, they don't learn how dirty they're being because you start to notice how dirty you are when you're forced to clean it. So you just know this man is filthy. Yeah. I feel bad for his poor mom. Like, you know, but also at the same time, a little bit. It's partially her fault, though. She got that crazy ass man in her house. Yeah. A little bit suspicious of the mom for enabling the scrotery. But yeah. The coterie of scrotes. A scrotery. The coterie of scrotery. A coterie of scrotes. It's a scrotery. Coterie of scrotery. Gosh, that's just... And the BDSM was just... Oh. Yeah, I want to know what BDSM was he, he was into. Was he a dom? He was, I mean, he's probably he must have been a dom. He must have been a dom. Like, yeah. Yeah, the BDSM part is just like the maraschino cherry on top of the shit cake. Yeah, like I've yet to meet a guy who is like, like, I feel like um, 
doms, like men who are doms, they're mostly losers in real life. So I feel like it's almost like a manifestation of them feeling like a total loser and powerless. And so they want to abuse a woman because it makes themselves feel like in control. It's the same thing as people who play like World of Warcraft and stuff because they don't have any control in their real life. And so by, or like Minecraft or whatever, by like having some control in this virtual world, they make them feel better about themselves which I actually think is better than BDSM because at least, you know, with video games, you're not, yeah, these are fictional people. You're not actually hurting anyone. Whereas with BDSM, you're like, you're literally like physically abusing someone else. So. And that's a good point. Cause whenever you hear BDSM being talked about in magazines, they always talk about like, Oh, sometimes powerful people want to feel like they're not in control in BDSM. And so that's why they do this. But I'm like, what about all the not powerful people that do that? So they can feel powerful against people that they can't how come they never talk about that aspect of it right it seems like a very one-sided presentation yeah why is it always about a powerful person wanting to give up power and not like a loser who wants to get more power yeah like a power hungry loser and what yeah why do we privilege these already privileged people's wants other than like the fact that there's just as many if not more of these like completely powerless disgusting scrotes who use this for abuse yeah you know, they're not even reclaiming power. It's power they never had in the first place that they're trying to claw back under the guise of being a dom. Yeah, basically all this BDSM stuff is just like a gateway drug for patriarchy. Like, it's it's a, like, it's a sneaky... It's one of those, like, sneaky ways that patriarchy is trying to come back, you know? It's like, well, now I can't, like, beat my wife in, like, a way where I'll get away with it, as at least not as easily as before. And so now I'm going to do it because it's a sex game and it's a kink or bdsm well it, it seems like like gail dine said from the 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 interview in the previous week is that it just seems like the ivies again like downloading their privileged values where from their perspective they're always in power so they always look at it from the perspective of someone who's already in power who wants to feel that they're not in power and not understanding like the vast majority of people who that does not apply to yeah. so once again we're hearing the privileged side of the bdsm story i was not expecting like a sociological analysis based on this roast of scrote yeah okay so Thank you, uh, Vixen, for your Rose to Scrote. If any of our other listeners would like to submit their very own Rose to Scrote or Gnosis or Queen shit, please go to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy and submit your story to us. Sign up for one of our tiers. Let's start the show. Before we get started, I just want to make a brief announcement about the state of the pod. We've been getting tons of amazing feedback from women, and it's become very clear to us that a lot of women are thirsty for this type of content. This is a niche in women's media that is desperately needed and has been neglected for a very long time. And we really want to be able to make more content. There's just one problem, and that's money. We would love to be able to quit our day jobs and work full-time on content creation, and the only thing holding us back is the fact that we got bills to pay, if I'm being totally honest. Long term, though, we would like to expand into other forms of media, such as video, TikTok, newsletters, ebooks, even like real physical books, and so on. And that's why we've set a new Patreon goal. As soon as we hit $10,000 monthly revenue, that will be enough for us to afford to quit our jobs and start working on growing FDS full time. Currently, our schedules only really allow us to post about 60 to 90 minutes of bonus content per month. And as a reward to our patrons for helping achieve this target, we will commit to posting more bonus content. 
So if you like FDS and you want us to grow and you want us to make more content, you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. And for the next 48 hours, we'll be offering a limited time offer called Lurker Mode, where you can access the bonus content at a reduced price of $5.99 per month. Thank you so much to everyone who listened and shared to help us to get to where we are now. And I'm sure this is a sign of even greater things to come. Thank you. What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Ro. And I'm Savannah. And this is Lilith. And today on our podcast, we have Elle Kamihira, a multi-genre film director and producer. She's here with us today to talk about Course of Control and her latest film, which is Jennifer 42, an animated true crime documentary about Jennifer Magnano, told from the perspective of her surviving children. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely love, love your content. And I'm looking forward to uh, sharing all I know. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. I saw the teaser for Jennifer 42, and it just absolutely sent chills right down my spine and immediately thought, like, I need to have you on our podcast. Jennifer Magnano's story is, you know, for many women, it's like our worst nightmare. So, you know, could you tell us more about Jennifer Magnano and her and her story? So Jennifer 42 is about Jennifer Magnano and her three children struggle to escape the violence and control of their dad, Scott Magnano. And uh, the way I found my way to the story is that I was researching course of control and I came across a investigative homicide review done by Michelle Cruz, the then victim's advocate in Connecticut, state of Connecticut. And she had written this like extremely detailed, very damning report about the homicide of Jennifer Magnano. And so when I read that, I just really felt the need to tell her story because it's so emblematic of what we don't understand about domestic abuse and what we desperately need, need to learn. So I uh, started working with her surviving children, three kids, Jessica, David, and Emily, who are now grown, but they were, uh, you know, 9, 16, and 21 when, uh, when all this went down. So the story, Jennifer 42, goes back into their kind of hidden family history, covering, you know, 15 years of an evolving abusive situation where their dad progressively got more and more controlling and started sort of micromanaging and and taking control of like every aspect of their lives Um, most of all jennifer's you know to the point where they couldn't go anywhere without his permission they couldn't move about the house jennifer was chained to the kitchen not literally chained but she she wasn't allowed to to move about the house she had to stay in the kitchen and um just kind of await scott's every command it went to complete absurdity where you know he made rules for how to wash their hands and how to shower and how to dress and like what temperature the water the water could be like every the, there was no how to switch a uh, you know flip a light switch how to vacuum how to do 
any anything at all. And so their lives became this sort of uh, nightmare of rules and regulations that they just couldn't escape from and it, and had their you know time and attention completely monopolized by this fear of or else you know he created a a system of uh, you know rules and regulations but though with with punishments if they didn't you know obey his specific rules over time the situation got more and more escalated and finally he and he, he Scott got more violent towards all members of the family, in particular Jennifer. So finally she had had enough and they made a a plan together, she and the children, and escaped and got away. But they thought, of course, that they were running to safety. What they met in the real world was a lot of indifference and they couldn't get help anywhere they turned locally. The shelter wouldn't take them because they one of her daughter you know Jessica was an adult and David was a teenage male and and they just couldn't uh couldn't get the help they needed so uh Scott of course was on their track right away and was starting to hunt them down in the town they lived in so they had to save themselves again and hopped on a on a train to California without food or money or anything when they got to California, they finally, you know, they had found a shelter that would that would take them, and uh, the California system kind of wrapped their arms around around the family, and they started to recover and and get the help they needed. But back in Connecticut, Scott was not apprehended, but not even interviewed by the police. Um, they didn't. Jennifer had filed a police report before she left town, and that that just sat on the desk. So nothing nothing happened with Scott. He uh, so he started sort of working the system, telling them that Jennifer had kidnapped the kids and so on. That's interesting. You bring that up about there not being a police report because we we just did some bonus content about Josh Duggar and how when he was confronted, I almost say confronted was the only thing that happened about um, sexually abusing uh, what allegedly was his sisters and his sister's friends. They basically went to the sheriff and the sheriff didn't even record it. The sheriff basically gave him like a knock it off and he was able to bypass prosecution because they just for whatever reason didn't take the crime seriously. And that's very much what happened in this case. They just, um, they just didn't do anything. The local police uh, just, I think, felt that he was uh, untouchable and that she was at fault somehow. They basically buy his version of events wholesale. He filed for custody of the kids and they gave it to him sight unseen without asking any questions. Jennifer was threatened with getting arrested and losing her kids and she was terrified. Connecticut compelled her to come back, they said, in court, uh, you know, facing your abuser here in Connecticut, which was not the law at the time at all. She put her trust in the justice system and came back to Connecticut. She did, you know, hire a lawyer and fought really hard for herself, both from the divorce and did, you know, did everything she was told, followed all the rules. Meanwhile, Scott 
didn't face any consequences whatsoever. He was just never, never even spoken to by the police or anyone. Jennifer ended up winning in the end. She won custody of the kids and she actually won the family house, which she hadn't expected. But she was so terrified that she knew she couldn't, you know, he had threatened to kill her every day of her life up until that point. So she knew she couldn't stay in town. So she went to the house under police escort. They swept the house and gave her the clear. And she went into the house to collect her belongings. And he had hidden in the basement and ambushed her. Tried to drag her way to the car, but she fought back, probably for the first time ever, and he shot her and killed her in front of the kids who were there. Ooh, the story just makes my blood boil. Yeah. So she had done, she had literally done everything, uh, you know, abuse victims are told to do. She had gotten herself to safety. She had mobilized her friends to protect her and hide her, gotten help from the shelter and everything else. And then the state of Connecticut just completely failed her, got her killed. Yeah. So now I gave you the whole plot of the film, there'll be no reason to come and see the film. No, I think I think that sort of storytelling is so important and not just hearing like a five minute recap on a podcast, right? So I really hope that people do go out and watch the movie. <laughs> Anyways, um, I definitely am. So, but, you know, you mentioned earlier um, that they're passing a new law called Jennifer's Law. And so this is, it sounds like an attempt to address some of the issues that um, were raised in Jennifer Magnano's case. And so could you tell us more about Jennifer's Law and and what it means? And, And it was passed, right? Sure. Yeah, it was passed in the House of Representatives, Connecticut House of Representatives yesterday. Awesome. That's amazing. Last night, in fact. And so it's being signed into law now. And it's so so we're we're kind of celebrating that. And it's a huge win for us. Jennifer's law, just just to give it a little background. um, So our our domestic violence response system is a trillion dollar you know, we call it the DV industrial complex, uh, agencies, shelters, hotlines, we spend billions of dollars. But the, the truth is, we, we really are not lowering the number of women murdered by their male partners or exes. That number has been static for a long time. And we've seen a mad uptick over the pandemic. The reason why we believe that we haven't been able to reduce the number of women killed in these situations is that they have domestic violence wrong as a concept. The law currently is that people will get arrested and charged for incidences, isolated incidences of violence. Whereas we know that domestic violence is a pattern of behaviors, a range of behaviors over time um, that includes psychological abuse, emotional abuse, uh, belittling, humiliation, threats, cruelty, you know, financial abuse, sexual abuse. It's a coordinated attack on another person, basically, over time. And so Jennifer's Law expands the definition of domestic violence to include all of these behaviors as a tactic 
over time, coercive control and the whole, whole full range. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed, even with, you know, on female dating strategies that abusive people all have this script. It's like, it's, you know, it's crazy when you get a bunch of women together in a room to talk about their experiences and abusive men will literally say the exact same words and phrases, <laughs> right? And have, it's, it follows a very, very basic formula. It's a playbook. It's a playbook. Yeah. It's a playbook. And so if you are the person in, you know, experiencing it and you don't know about this formula, you don't know about this playbook, it can make, you can almost be led to feel like you're the crazy one. Absolutely. The other person's uh, totally fine and you're the problem kind of thing. Right. And so, and, and when we, we at FDS have made it our mission essentially to call out this pattern, these patterns, these playbooks. And guys will get really mad at us, right? They'll be like, oh, you know, like, he doesn't mean it that way when he says this or that, or maybe he meant something else or so on, right? Like men on the internet are fully invested in like gaslighting women out of noticing these patterns, right? And so, you know, what are some, I guess the question I have for you is, you know, what are some of the, like, what is coercive control, I guess? And what are the like red flags that women because it it builds up over time, right? But what are some like the early red flags that women can watch out for to protect themselves? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, it's a, that's a lot to unpack. Um, but I think the kind of like fundamental thing to understand about it is that generally speaking, men's violence against women occurs within the context of women's and girls' subordinate status in society. And it serves to maintain that unequal balance of power. That's kind of like a fundamental thing to remember. Coercive control, and I think this is really, really important to talk about right now, because in the domestic violence field, there is a movement to de-gender or gender neutralize, I should say, gender neutralize abuse. To say that it's, you know, they call it intimate partner violence or, uh, you know, all kinds of like genderless terms. Abuse can happen to anyone, you know, men get abused too, blah, 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 blah. I think it's really, really important to acknowledge that coercive control and domestic abuse is predicated on the devalued status of women. I'm quoting Evan Stark there, meaning that coercive control is kind of rooted in the fact that women have a lower status in society than men, and that there is an already power imbalance by the fact that you have a man and a woman in a house where the man is a first-class citizen and the woman is a second-class citizen just by the fact of how society is structured. Yeah, they have to ignore all the interconnected systems of power that make that possible to make that kind of gender-neutral claim. And the entire basis of Jennifer's law was the fact that the police force and the state help to event their inaction and or um, way that they sort of took the man's side automatically is what enabled him to eventually murder her. That's right. I mean, and we talk we talk about a male alliance in these um, these situations where there is a you know informal kind of male alliance that where in these situations where women are crying wolf, if you will, they link hands or link arms to protect each other. Um, And I think that very much happened in this case also where 
you know, they didn't want to incriminate Scott Magnano. He was a he was a fellow guy. Well, we talk all the time about how police are usually are like 40% of them apparently are domestic abusers as well. So like they probably they, they saw him probably as a fellow bro, like, yeah, like teaming up, beating our wives together kind of thing. So I, I talked about this too in our, our bonus content about how my, I had a relative that was in a domestic violent situation. And when she went to get divorced, um, and she'd been hospitalized a few times because of uh, the abuse. When she went to get divorced, maybe about half the times her husband was arrested was actually recorded. Like a lot of the times when the cops came to the house, they just sort of picked him up and then let him back out and never filed a police report. So then when she went to get divorced, it was harder to prove had the the volume of incidents of domestic violence that occurred. Yeah, and we talk about this, you know, united front of misogyny <laughs> that men seem to have where they link hands and all seem are like united in their mission to oppress women. And people call us crazy for that. They'll say like, oh, you're acting like there's this whole conspiracy or like, you know, calling us conspiracy theorists for noticing how men work together to you know, they have this sort of, un, you know, unofficial code or whatever to to support one another and, and to not challenge other male abusers. And so, and, and back to the, what you were saying about the gender neutral stuff, because um, the, I was reading some articles about how they tried to change the name of Jennifer's Law to something gender neutral, like on domestic violence and, or something, something, some long and weird, uh, you know, title. So... Yeah, they were very anxious to have uh, the name of two murdered women off that law. Why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why? Yeah, that's a good question. Woke misogyny. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, you know, we can, we, I can talk about this all, all day. Woke misogyny, 100%. In Connecticut, our biggest opposition was the five big, big, DV domestic violence agencies. That's who were, you know, were our biggest rivals and opponents. It doesn't make any sense um, because they, I can't pretend to fully understand, but I, I do think that the domestic violence agency world is captured by other patriarchal systems. Uh, I think they are captive of the money uh, federal money, they're all federally funded. I think they're cap- captive of the general criminal justice system, which is still, you know, extremely male and in the business of protecting the interests of men. It's been interesting to see, too, about how easy it is to kind of manipulate certain narratives, because I know that they're always doing different research on domestic violence and trying to be conclusive. But sometimes I feel like in the attempts to be inclusive, they end up not helping anybody because they don't, you know, they don't focus on specific types of uh, coercion, specific types of abusive systems. I think if you want to tear down the abusive system, you have to look at the specifics of what's causing it rather than sort of a just broad general idea that abuse should stop. Like you have to look at the steps to get there. Yeah. The the title, by the way, just to circle back, the title that they wanted to change it to, I guess, or the, the official title was An Act Concerning a Study of Criminal Laws of This State which is bullshit. Yeah. I mean, word salad. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is that? What is that? Yeah. It's a lot of obfuscation. You know, I think it's uh, one part is people who like things just the way they are. And another part is uh, people who are just too afraid to rock the boat. And so these domestic violence, I guess, 
you know, organizations that were opposing this law? Like, what were their arguments? Like, what were they even trying to say? I wasn't in those back rooms where those conversations took place, but I do know that it, it has to do with money, federal funding. It has to do with, there's a lot of money in law, divorce law, family court. Um, family court is famously corrupt in every state. DV agencies sort of work hand in hand with family court. I don't know exactly where things fall apart. I'm not, that's not my kind of area of, of expertise yet, <laughs> but they are not on our side. I know that. They are not on our side of wanting to make, you know, fundamental change and make stronger protections for women. Damn, that is haunting. And that makes me so angry. Yeah, that is haunting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I wanted to go back to your earlier question about, like, what what women go, you know, dating women should look out for. Because I think that's a really good question. And again, like a little bit back to fundamentals, like we are, you know, we're socialized a certain way, like we're socialized to accept that men are dominant, and that they have an entitlement to have their needs met. And women are socialized to take care of others' needs before our own. And I think women should pay really, really careful attention to the the power balance between yourself and a partner. And I don't know that we do that enough, that we see, like, who, who dictates the terms of the relationship? And do you have, going into it, significantly less power than your your male partner? And be wary of that. I also think I mean, my, my daughter is 30 now. So and she has she has a boyfriend, so she's not in the market. But I think if I was if I was raising a daughter now, I would just tell her in no uncertain terms that like choosing a male partner is a risky business. And that that it can have devastating consequences if you choose someone choose wrong. And that you should carefully vet your partner, you know, before, before going, going too far into anything. And that's where we come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because what happens is whenever these cases happen, they always say, oh, it's your fault because you picked the wrong guy or, you know, you're, you know, they, they, immediately question the woman like, oh, he did this or that. Why didn't you leave? And so FDS comes in. We're like, okay, here's a list of things to look out for. And if a guy does any things, any of these things, dump him. And the reaction's been insane, right? The reaction has been, that's, that's unreasonable. You guys are overreacting. It's misandrist. Yeah, it's misandrist. They're like, oh, you're excluding so many guys with these rules. Yeah, that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> Exclude away. Because we get blamed for it if we don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, you know, um, abuse is a serious thing. And end, ending up in an abusive relationship for a woman can seriously derail your life. And it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean physical abuse either. You know, all the other coercive control, now that we can kind of like name those things, are just as devastating as physical 
physical abuses. I mean, we talk about there's a term called prospecticide uh, that's kind of used for for coercive control, and it basically means a person rolls into your life and turns your reality upside down. Uh, what you think you believe in, who you are, the values you subscribe to, your relationships, and and everything that kind of shapes you is just thrown into complete disorientation. And where you lose your own perspective as a as a human being that you had before you met this guy, and it's replaced with his perspective of you, of the world, of your other relationship, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I've noticed with men who are abusive. They act like their perspective is the only one that matters, and that their perspective is just objective reality, no matter how distorted their perspective or how misogynistic or wrong they are. They are just fully committed to their perspective being seen as the only one that is correct, right? Um, and and I, I wanted to talk about the line, the tagline of the movie, which is, if she stayed, she would die. If she left, she would die. And so ah, that just gets to me, right? Like, that's just like a punch to the gut, because I think so many women know this feeling where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? So if you stay, you're fucked. If you go, you're fucked. And so the following question is, what would you do? And so I guess our question is, you know, what, what are you supposed to do if you find yourself in a, what, you know, what do you do if you find yourself in a situation like this? The whole purpose with uh, kind of raising awareness about course of control is to give women um, or future victims the idea that this is a long timeline that starts somewhere that looks innocent but that may lead, you know, that will lead to somewhere really bad. And so the idea is to end the relationship before you're completely ensnared and cut off at the knees, before you're drowning. And so, you know, it's to know that you have much better chance at survival, much much better chance of getting away without incredible damage if you get out earlier. And the coercive control law, Jennifer's law, of course, now you can actually go to court and you can say earlier in the relationship, you know, I want to charge, I want my partner charged for surveilling me against my will for stalking me, for taking my money, for restricting my, uh, you know, movement, for withholding resources, or whatever the case may be. Every abuser have different tactics. But so that's the tool, that's the, you know, powerful tool to get out earlier. Now, if you are at the point where you'll die if you stay and you'll die if you leave, you have to escape. You have to escape. You have to make a safe plan, mobilize your friends, escape and cut off all contact and charge, 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 like get this guy. You know, only less than 1% of domestic violence offenders ever see any jail time. So that gives you an idea 
and a, and a lot of victims never have any involvement with law enforcement whatsoever. So it's a very, very pervasive problem, and a lot of victims that go without, without assistance, without help, and without police intervention. I say charge. Just charge them. Press your case. Do what you can to hold them accountable. In um, the course of doing the research for the film, um, was there anything that surprised you about, um, I guess, abusive relationships or, um, or dynamics? What surprised me the most over time is that I had had a notion that women who ended up in these abusive relationship were, relationships were a certain type, that they had certain weaknesses or just weren't strong enough or weren't looking out for their own best interest or had perhaps abuse in their background. Or What I came to find, I think, is that there is no type of woman who gets abused. It runs a complete spectrum of, you know, from high-powered career women to, you know, housewives to every economic strata, every race culture. There's just no no type whatsoever. They run the gamut. That's something I noticed. Like, I'm obsessed with the Dirty John oh, yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm obsessed with that. Um, one of the things like in the responses is that so many people are so like mean to Deborah Newell. They'll call her stupid or they'll, you know, a lot of the responses to her is very misogynistic actually. And say like, even in the actual podcast, one of the lines was like, I think this speaks to the compartmentalization of intelligence because how would someone so successful, um, be so stupid basically. Right. And so, and I, I think that's an excellent point because people think like, oh, if she's a high-powered businesswoman and so on, you know, we like to think that that makes us less vulnerable to abuse, but that's not necessarily the case, right? There's no one type of woman who gets abused. No, no, there isn't. And that's that's really, really important to remember. Uh, you know, Laura, uh, my our executive producer, Laura Richards, works closely with Deborah and Tara Newell. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, you might want to have her on the show, too. She has her own podcast, um, Real Crime Profile. Um, uh, but she talks about this often, and she says, you know, uh, it's called Dirty John, not poor decision making Deborah. Yeah. Um and and that gets to it. It's it, it's not just because you're a romantic or uh you're you know you're you think the best of people or you give people the benefit of the doubt or whatever doesn't mean that you deserve to end up tormented by a psychopath. Exactly. Because John also, he specifically targeted nurses and like career women. He, he targeted professional women. And I think if anything, like, because professional women are told like, oh, you know, if you're no man's going to want you if you're more successful than him. Right. So I think a lot of professional women end up internalizing this narrative that like they're less desirable or that fewer guys that are going to be into them. And that so and this makes us even more vulnerable when a guy comes along who does treat us well or who actually likes those things. And you think, oh, my gosh, I've hit the jackpot. Like, you know, and you're much, much less likely to walk away from these types of relationships because you think, oh, like, if I 
dump this guy, then um, I might not find another guy like him who accepts me. Well, that too, and like women who are uh, very good at being effective or taking responsibility or in caretaking positions, they tend to have that carry over into their romantic life. So sometimes I think women who are very, very motivated, sometimes they, they take a lot of responsibility that's not theirs. So they might end up blaming themselves for the man's behavior because they think, well, what could I have done better in this situation? Because they're always thinking about how to move themselves forward, not realizing that sometimes things are not your fault and and furthermore, not your responsibility and that you deserve, especially in your romantic life, to just be treated well, just being a person. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's exactly what happened with Deborah, actually. And look, if if you take responsibility for something that happened, then you can also fix it. So it's like it's not wanting to be a victim that motivates that also. I found that with myself too. <laughs> like not not to that extreme, but where you just don't want to lose sometimes. So that's that's just, I think, a very human emotion, especially for a person who is the type to take responsibility for themselves, is the type to think that I'm the kind of person that can impact my environment. You like to believe that you can change situations for the better. Exactly. And also, I think what people don't understand about the the abusers and Dirty John specifically is that abusers groom. They groom and they, they compliance test. So they don't all of a sudden violate your boundaries. They do things very incrementally, very one step at a time. Uh, They'll make an overly critical comment or, you know, kind of uh, invade your space in in kind of overwhelming way or they're too fast or too intense or uh, or things in, in order to find out what you'll accept. And... If you push back, they know you you won't go for that, and they may change tactics and do something else. So it's it's a moving target you got, and someone who's very calculated in terms of how they come at you. Women like that are probably more attractive victims too, for people who are who get off on coercive control or, or narcissistic, because a woman who doesn't challenge you maybe doesn't feel as interesting as a as a as a sparring partner for your abuse as a person who is more likely to try to set boundaries but sometimes again we talk we talk about the the failures of communication when it comes to working with abusive men there's so much out there when it comes to women uh, encouraging women to do so much emotional labor in their relationships and to endlessly communicate but i think it is so important, at least how we stress in FDS, to understand like no one to hold them and no one to fold them. Like you have to walk away from this crap. It is not your responsibility to keep having to reassert your boundaries and communicating what should be basic respect to grown men. Yeah, coercive men definitely do. And I've noticed this in my personal life, like really abusive men do seem specifically drawn to high power businesswoman types because they like the challenge of taking down like big game, so to speak. They'll even say like big game, you know, a, a moose as opposed to a deer or something like that, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, that, uh, that it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's a challenge and a game. It has that aspect to it, which is just, um, chilling to, to think about. Yeah. And the, the, the phrase you said earlier, compliance testing, oh boy, I'm going to start using that phrase so much more in FDS because like the, the manosphere, they call it shit testing. That perspecticide, that's a new one on me too. Perspecticide. 
Yeah, perspecticide and sh- um, compliance testing. Yeah, because on in, abusive men will say like, oh, I was shit testing her. I was doing this and that. Like they are specifically strategizing on how to be abusive. Which tells you something. It tells you that they not only do they know what they're doing, but as a group know what they're doing and they strategize together. And so if, if that's the case, that should tip us off, us being women or on the other side of that, that, you know, we're targets. They're, they're doing it, you know, it's a purposeful thing. It's not, you know, it's not just like this one bad guy or bad behavior. It's much more structured than that. It's interesting. It's interesting you make that point, Al, because um, Lindy Bancroft and why does he do that? Um, he he does an excellent job of breaking down um, the the different kinds of abuses and also why like men abuse. But he makes it very very clear that the reason why abusive men are abusive is because it gets them what they want, and that is like the crux of you know, their attitude is that they know it will get them what they want. And it's also why they are not abusive towards everyone in their life. They don't treat their boss badly because they know that the outcome will be unfavorable as well. So in a way, it's really, really, it's extremely dark, the mentality of the abusive man, because it's so, so calculated in a way that I think few women, um, you know, can comprehend. And it's also why um, just... Um, circle and back to what Rose said about just communicate is so so dangerous because these men know exactly what they're doing they know that what they're doing is abusive um, but for them um, the abuse is you know like it helps them you know, to get what they want I, I'm nodding my head furiously <laughs> <laughs> and the woman is just is just essentially collateral damage to what they want essentially that's how they see it absolutely and uh, but the other side of that coin is they do it because they can and we're not stopping them and they enjoy it I am of the belief and this is much debated in uh, you know in the domestic violence field, but the only thing that stops an abuser is accountability and consequence. I don't believe in therapy. I don't believe in family solution. I least of all believe in restorative justice. 100%. Yeah. These guys deserve zero compassion, zero chances. Because some of the things we find online is people will say like, oh, it was just a one-time thing. Like they'll try to have you believe like it's just an isolated incident. Not all guys are like that or whatever. Uh, or that he's secretly a good guy at heart. Well, they they have this idea that everything can be fixed through community building or um, therapy or medication. And perhaps in some distant future, that might be the case. But right now, the goal is to get the abusers off the street. And when you say things like that, you start getting accused of being a quote unquote carceral feminist or that you think the criminal justice system can solve everything. But the problem is like, we don't have a better alternative right now and we need to stop the bleeding right now. So I don't know any person who considers himself a feminist who thinks like the only solution is prison, but I feel like it's a little bit naive to just, you know, pontificate in some far off distant future where we have uh, more peaceable solutions to guys like this and just not acknowledge that some people are just born with a few screws and if we don't have the medication to treat them, you know, right now we just have to fi- figure out how to get them out of the population so they stop abusing other people and then continuing these cycles of violence. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at domestic violence, you will quickly see that it doesn't stay at home. 
uh, there are so many other branches of crime that is connected to domestic violence and that begin with domestic violence, mass shootings or terrorism or other, you know, sort of like mass crimes. In a large percentage of those cases, there's domestic violence at kind of at the at the root of it. I read that about uh, uh, rape as well, that uh, guys a lot of times who rape are also involved in a lot of other petty type street crimes. So it does seem like misogyny is a lot of, is a gateway drug. <laughs> 100% to, to so much other so many other things. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, it 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 just like it's human nature. If we don't see consequences and we do can do things with impunity, we aren't going to fix ourselves. So, like or fix fix the problem. We we you know, they must see consequences for their behavior or they're just going to continue doing what they do to get what they want, like you said. Exactly. And they deserve to face consequences because guess what? The victims of abusers face consequences every day for the rest of their life after they leave their abuser. They're suffering the consequences of that relationship. And so to try to go for some kind of restorative justice for some, for a perpetrator like that is unjust to the victim. Well, it's also a gift to the abuser, you know, because it gives re-entry and gives access to to more people to abuse, yeah. More people to abuse, but also to their victim. And it requires the victim to, you know, it burdens the victim with trying to, you know, to f- fix w- what is termed a relationship problem when there's not a relationship problem. There's a victim and a perpetrator. Um, yeah, I'm just sitting here, like, staring into the abyss, like, holy shit, like, this is just, <laughs> this conversation's changed my life. Anyways, so. <laughs> but um yeah uh no i just said i'm i'm super super encouraged by the changes that are taking place like uh i mean you speaking or like your podcast is like a is just like a a light in the darkness and and um and i also think you know feminists all over are uh, you know, starting to understand and strategize in a serious way. Course of control laws are on the books in Scotland, Wales, and the UK, and California and Hawaii. I think change is on the way for sure. Definitely, I'm. I'm going to look into this. This needs to get on the books in Canada. I don't think it is, but it, it needs to be a thing because uh, we need a version of something like Jennifer's Law here, too. Yeah. I don't know how it is in the states, but in in Canada. Um, if a man is being abusive or like, you know, in a domestic violence case, they don't need the, you know, they don't need the the victim to press charges. And so it's kind of a blessing and a curse because, um, you know, in the States, my understanding is like, be, they need the victim to press charges and that puts them in danger because the abuser will come after them. Like, it's your fault that I'm having these legal problems. Right. And so, and often like they'll, the reason why they kill the uh, victim is so that they can't testify. And so in Canada, they kind of bypassed that and said, you know, it doesn't matter if the victim presses charges or not, if the man is committing domestic violence, he's going to get charged. However, the problem with this is that it means you're also completely at the mercy of the RCMP. And as we all know, police are in on the game, right? And so they are not so incentivized to, 
charge abusers unless it gets really, really bad and it would be a PR nightmare for them to not charge them. It depends in the states. It, it's really state by state, county by county, because I know there are certain counties that have mandatory arrest. Um, and that's controversial as well for different reasons. But meaning if a, if a police show up for an, a domestic violence call, they're, uh, they have to uh, arrest someone because they were because there was a long history of them showing up to these domestic violence situations and basically ignoring it. And then these women getting murdered. So, but what I'm seeing with that is worse now abusers will then call the police and then it's the victim who gets arrested in a lot of these cases. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's the downside of the mandatory arrest stuff. So there's there, it it just, the United States is a vast country, (laughs) a lot of different, it's a vast country and most of it's trash. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I explained this on the podcast. Like, let me defend my country for once. Uh, No, but it is just, it's just, um, it's it's uh every place has its own ethos, its own set of governing systems. Yeah, it's weird and bad, okay? Your your country is bad and you should feel bad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not perfect. So <laughs> we're we're it's the, I, I like to think of it we're the American experiment for the re- for a reason. It's because we're always experimenting with crazy ass stuff. <laughs> yeah, other countries get to look at you and go like, "Ugh, like that's what not to do." Like <laughs> basically, and for that everyone's welcome. You're welcome for us being the example of what not to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the mandatory arrest uh thing is is um kind of a uh, a weird thing to think about because um, it actually originated in Connecticut as well, just down the road from where Jennifer lived. Um, Tracy Thurman was the was the woman who was getting the crap beaten out of her right in front of police, and they didn't do anything, and she was like paralyzed and brain damaged, and from this beating that she took from her husband, and uh, and she sued the police department and and won, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And so that's where mandatory arrest comes from. But like you said, it's resulted in a dual arrest. So they arrest the victim along with the abuser, or sometimes the victim instead of the abuser. But I think what's really important to look at there is that unless you train police to look at women and men, that this is a male pattern crime and that it's a gendered crime that very, very, very rarely is reversed, then that's the kind of the missing insight there is that if you're a police and you go out to a a domestic violence call, 99% of the time it's going to be a woman victim and a male perpetrator. So why are we, why, why, why this insistence on seeing it as gender neutral? Yeah. It's a big disservice to, to victims. Absolutely. And uh, the, the point you made about, you know, police needing to be trained to recognize that this is a male problem, it needs to happen. But at the same time, I feel like because most police officers are male uh, and men don't like to see themselves as the bad guy, So I find one of the things I've noticed online is guys becoming extremely defensive about talking about things as a male, you know, things like male violence. They say that the word male violence is sexist against men, right? So, (laughs) yeah, um, there's, yeah, I know there's a lot to unpack there, but. There is um so this is sort of sort of uh, a side note, but related. I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about um 
this country, and I don't want to say the country because I can't remember the exact name. I don't want to say it wrong. But basically, um, for domestic violence crimes, it's handled by the elder women of the community that essentially, rather than getting the police involved, like all your aunties and grandmas like roll up with like shoes and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, there's they have more of a community policing mindset. And that kind of that at least helps. I don't you know, they're it's not a perfect system, obviously, but it's uh, it kind of helps to separate um, the police from having the responsibility to take care of domestic violence crimes when it's uh, so often gendered and so often women are the victim. So that's a country that at least acknowledged that, OK, women are disproportionately the victims of this type of crime. Let's have a, you know, a, a governing force of women to come in and handle these specific types of incidents. So there's there's other ways to do this. We just don't do that in our country. And the, the cops are asked to do a lot that they are just not qualified or equipped to do. <laughs> like, Or nor do they have the desire. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And that's a huge part of the part of the problem. But I mean, you know, uh, like in places like in Spain, they have a special specialized court for violence against women and domestic violence, where the the court system only handle violence against women and domestic violence. So everyone from judges to uh, lawyers to advocates, uh, etc., are educated in the dynamics of domestic violence. And so that's where you go if you're a victim of domestic violence. And it is for, you know, it, obviously it's acknowledged that, you know, men are the abusers and women are the victims. And so it's a, you know, it's a, a, a women's court that's specialized in that. Uh, so that's a solution. That's a model. What are some other solutions? Let's brainstorm while we're on the, on the topic other than throwing them in jail, which is my favorite solution. Yeah. <laughs> my too. My other favorite solution is just putting all the rapists and all the murders on an island and they can just duke it out, kill, kill and rape each other and leave the women alone, you know? So, um, but what are some, what are some realistic yeah. solutions? Let's... I feel like rapist island is going to be politically difficult. But like, <laughs> rapist island difficult to pass politically yeah <laughs> well unless they unless they can make it into a compelling uh da- compelling reality tv show then i feel like they'll yeah like make it like jurassic park or something then well then then uh then you can justify anything because you, have you seen like naked and afraid in these other tv shows where they just literally <laughs> drop naked people off in the middle of the jungle i feel like if you can make a compelling tv we might be able to get away with rapist island but <laughs> as a legal proceeding maybe not <laughs> rapist island uh yeah, and also, are the rapists going to be compelling on television? I don't know. I feel like a, a reality TV show <laughs> Rapist Island. <laughs> I don't know why. I want to see a TV show called Rapist Island. <laughs> where guys duke it out. Oh, um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Sorry, I'm just imagining like a Survivor-style competition where they do like games and stuff. <laughs> Sorry. This is a serious topic. I shouldn't be laughing, but anyways. <laughs> okay. Um, anyways, uh, but I wanted to ask, uh, like, what's, what is the release date for Jennifer 42? Cause it hasn't been released yet. Right? No, we're still in production. In fact, you know, we're, we are looking for a, a co-production partnership for the animation production of it right now. So I'm meeting, having all kinds of meetings with animation studios to put it into animation production. So that's where we, that's where we are 
at. We got knocked sideways by the pandemic. Uh, we have a lot of things uh, kind of lined up that uh, that just uh, was canceled on us. So we're you know we're struggling to to regain the momentum we lo- we lost, and it's starting to look better again. But we're we're still that's where we are. And. And how does like how's how are you getting funding for this? Like, is it just by donation or you know because animating is expensive, right? So yeah, it is expensive. So we've we've survived on grants in the U.S. You know, uh, documentaries are funded a lot by foundations and grants. So we for the documentary portion we survived on grants and some investments and a Kickstarter campaign. But now for the animation. We're looking to get for either a Canadian European co-production deal or to a co-production deal with with an animation studio. So that would be then like paid for by you know some a streaming deal or something. Right. Okay. I wanted to talk about women centric media a little bit and how um, like would you say that it's been challenging to get funding or to get people interested in this story or yeah i think so i mean we went into it f- feeling that we were very non-mainstream obviously uh partly because it's a hybrid film it's an animated documentary but partly because it's such a, a such a difficult subject matter that you know people recoil from um but we also kind of went into it saying we we want to have um, we want to speak to, you know, a kind of a grassroots audience. And so we've, we've, we, we're really active on social media. We're active in the domestic violence community support groups and victims groups, survivor groups. Um, and so we're getting a lot of, you know, interest and support from, from them. But yes, absolutely. This isn't something that uh, is sort of mainstream movie industry is going to come running to. Yeah. And so I I wanted to take this opportunity if there's anything that you wanted to plug or, you know, what if our audience audience is listening to this and they want to help get this in production and or get this through production, you know, what what can we do about that? Well, um, absolutely go to jennifer42movie.com. That's where we have all of our information and you can donate there and there are different levels of donations uh, that can get you various perks and things. There's also uh, Believe Women merch on there, uh, if you're interested in that. Um, And then, you know, but if there are any uh, women-centric producers listening to this, um, contact me. (laughs) Awesome, yeah. Um, I I, I I do want Jen... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ro. I said, I just thought of a tagline for Rapist Island. Rapist Island. They really are raping everybody out here. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I had to get that one in. They really are raping everybody out here. Okay. Um, But no, back to, you know, talking about, you know, um, plugging the movie and and production and stuff. And so I I do actually seriously want to ask our audience to to keep bear in mind that you know us as women as feminists we're up against this like massive goliath you know this uh you know most media is made by and for 
men, right? And it kind of pisses me off that there's always like hundreds of millions of dollars to throw at the latest fucking Adam Sadler or Seth Rogen movie to talk about their dumbass bro comedy. But when women want to get our stories out there, all of a sudden we hit this wall of funding, right? And so my call to action to our own audience is basically we have to vote with our dollars, spend money on things that benefit women. If you're a woman listening to this, you know, pull out your wallet, donate to Jennifer42, and while you're at it, sign up for our Patreon. (laughs) Yes, we made some changes actually to our Patreon recently because we are no longer doing a raffle. But on our Patreon, we still uh, have the available option to submit your story for a roast or scrot analysis or a queen shit. And uh, we'll read it on air and help uh, celebrate your life or roast all the low value men in your life. That's patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. I, I love your term, low-value man. <laughs> I think that's so apt. <laughs> it's so funny how men get so offended to, by it, too. They're like, I'm not low-value. I'm, like, medium-value or something. It's like, no, bro, you're low-value. Just accept it. Take your L and go. <laughs> and there's also negative-value men as well. There's, like, a spectrum. It goes from high-value to low-value to negative-value. Yeah. Oh, and so abusers definitely end up negative-value. They're definitely ne- definitely negative-value, like, extreme end of the spectrum, minus five. Yeah. <laughs> it goes from five to minus five. We got criticized a while back because um, we they say, oh, it's, like, dehumanizing to categorize men into two categories or three categories. Um, Someone said like, oh, well, at least the manosphere uses a one to 10 scale to rate women's appearances. That makes them better. (laughs) And so Uh, what I did is I had a post that was like, um, okay, we implement our new 10 point scale. Uh, The scale is negative five to positive five because... (laughs) It can't be zero to ten because that would imply that abusive or shitty men, like if he's a one or a two, have some value. Yeah, <laughs> they have zero. That would imply that they have some value when they don't. We need to <laughs> they have less be very clear <laughs> that with men, like half of them have a, the opposite of a positive value. Like they literally are negative value, and that they take away from your life, not adding to it. Don't shorten your lifespan. Yeah. Whereas in contrast, even the the least attractive woman, a one or two still has value. Whereas a guy on the lower end of the scale, mm-mm, nah, negative value there. He's, yeah. he's not worth it. Negative value male island. Negative no. value okay. male uh, island. <laughs> 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 it doesn't have the same thing as rapist island. <laughs> well, I do think, you know, it's not apples and apples, women and men, I just want to say, you know, like... Yeah, it's apples and oranges. Yeah, and they have, you know, they may have like a, uh, you know, we're finicky about them issue, but we have a murder issue, and that's a a whole different the whole different thing. So yeah, guys are worried that they'll spend money on a date and she won't call him back. Women are worried about getting killed. So, you know, a a good man would recognize that uh, difference. The fact that we have different fears and would be compassionate about that. Um, you know, I have a, a back to the f- female filmmakers thing. I have a quote from Abigail Disney. She says, Hollywood needs to think about reparations because its role on uh, positing masculine force, aggression and violence as an answer to every question. And I think that's right. Definitely. But um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Ro- Savannah, was there anything that you wanted to add or? Yeah, we're good. Awesome talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elle, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. Please follow our Twitter at fem.strat as well as 
visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy, as well as our website at thefemaledatingstrategy.com. Thank you for listening, queens, and for all you wannabe Rapist Island contestants, die mad. Preferably on Rapist Island. <laughs>